Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Bill Brower with FMBA Nation, and we are back. It is 2021. We have uh, crossed over to the other side of the fence, and hopefully everyone listening, uh, you and your families are both healthy and safe right now. We are looking forward to the light at the end of the tunnel here. And uh, we've got some really great things coming from FMBA Nation for you in 2021. Excited to announce we're going to have some new podcast hosts. It's going to be putting together some new shows and things for uh, the FMBA members and our supporters. So we're looking forward to that. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Alex Jobber from Emergency Resilience LLC. And she's designed a course around death notifications on scene, which I know it sounds like a very doom and gloom type of topic for everybody, but it is something that if you're doing fire-based EMS or if you're a part of an EMS agency, you're pretty much, you're ultimately going to be faced with this task at some point in your career, and that is notifying uh, the family member that their loved one has deceased on scene. So it's, it's a very educational and insightful podcast. Uh, took away a lot of information from Alex and the course that she's designed. If you stick around to the end, she'll give you the information on the course and how to contact her. Um, but have yourself a listen. I hope you get some, some really good information out of it. And uh, stay tuned for more great things to come from FMBA Nation in 2021. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Bill Brower with FMBA Nation coming to you live from the Pro Studios here in Rahway, New Jersey. I've got the honor and privilege to be joined by Alexandra Jobber. She is a EMT paramedic. Um, she began her career in EMS in 2003. She's been teaching since 2008. Um, she's an advocate for the mental health of first responders, specializing in resilience, PTSD, and death notification training. Uh, she's also the creator of Emergency Resilience LLC, which is an educational platform geared towards bridging the gap between the needs of field personnel and available resources that are currently being underutilized. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining me again uh, today, talking about a topic that is not often talked about, especially when we're talking about the training of our first responders, our police, our fire, our EMTs, our paramedics out in the field. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in the EMS world? And uh, how did that bring you to where we are today? Gosh, thinking back on how I got started, I, I don't come from a family of EMS. I don't Nobody in my family had ever done this. I'd never even known anybody who did this before. And I was a senior in high school when somebody just mentioned the idea of doing it. And I thought, mm, no college, I'll do that. So I just wanted something that would get me out into the workforce without uh, much time and training. And so I did it out of curiosity and it stuck. So that's really the only thing I've done, the only field I've really worked in my entire adult life. And you've been, uh, you've been a medic now for uh, how long? It looks like uh, you've been in EMS since 2003. Did you become a, a medic in 2003? In 2010. I became an EMT in 2003 and I went gotcha. through medic school in 2010. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So tell me, um, tell me a little bit about where you are today. You're the creator of Emergency Resilience LLC. And I actually, uh, for our listeners, I came across Alex um, by means of another person that we've had on the podcast before, one of our keynote speakers, which is Daniel Sundahl. And he had a very interesting piece I saw on Instagram 
where um, it was an image of some first responders in the field. There was a patient that had passed away in the field in the house. And it was a very moving piece in that uh, you could see the first responders talking to the family, which is what kind of brings us here today. Um, your, your company, Emergency Resilience LLC, you focus on this type of education um, and, and this type of uh, topic. Tell me about... Um, how you created it, why did you create it, um, and kind of what does it cover? How do, how do um, the people involved in fire, EMS, and law enforcement find this educational information beneficial? Well, uh, first off, I'm really glad that you came across uh, Daniel, or Dan's son's uh, photography, because it's, I mean, his artwork is so incredible, and I was genuinely moved when I saw that. Um, I had requested, I'd asked him about a year ago, hey, have you ever thought about doing a piece or do you have a piece that covers, uh, you know, the first responders not being able to resuscitate the patient and then kind of comforting the family? He goes, I've been thinking about that. He goes, I'll be sure to let you know when I do. And he was able to tie in his own experience with it and kind of stage the, the, the call that way. And so I thought that was really, really beautiful. Um, as far as why I started it, I started out of frustration because I was getting tired of being told there's no time for this or that. Um, I've worked both for community colleges, university, um, fire department as an educator as well. And, you know, that seemed to be, there's always this emotional interest, but when it comes to getting your boots on the ground and actually rolling out this kind of training and prioritizing it, it's always, there's no time. So I thought, well, I'll just make the training and then people who want to take it, will take it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know that I would start with this course, to be honest with you. Uh, the county I was working in um, as an educator had recently started this, had recently started this. That's my dog. Sorry. That's, that's okay. <laughs> this is part of the pandemic. <laughs> he, he's a fierce six pound chihuahua. Pretty funny story about how I got him, but that'll be for later. Um, so... They, the, the, the county I was living in and, and working in as a teacher, I had just rolled out this new protocol to make paramedics stay on scene for 20 minutes at least and not transport unless they got a pulse pack. And it was a recommendation. It wasn't a hard, fast rule, but it did come with its degree of pushback, um, you know, thinking, you know, what, what are the family going to think? You know, it's going to turn into this, you know, chaotic scene and it's going to be unsafe for us. And that's just awkward. And completely unbeknownst to them that next door that county had been doing it for eight years and then LA County even longer than that so it, it's it's funny how stuck in our little bubble we get thinking that this is not a, a, a growing trend and at the same time you're gonna get resistance on protocols like that and changes like that without acknowledging something that is very much part of this job 90 percent of the time when an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest occurs the patient dies and if more and more agencies say, don't bring the hospital unless they get a pulse back, then we're going to be faced with having that uncomfortable conversation more and more. Mm -hmm. So I just decided to create the curriculum for it. I actually had this, for, uh, had this foresight to do it back when I was finishing my bachelor's degree. And I decided to go finish my, um, go to graduate. I applied for a program um, that specified in death and grief. And I did that with the intention of creating this coursework. Yeah. 
Now you're currently, I know you you hold your app, your master's degree in, in death, grief, and bereavement. You're currently uh, working towards your uh, doctorate in uh, depth psychology. Um, tell me, give me your thoughts on this. Why has this topic uh, not really been looked at more in depth during the EMT medic, you know, fire academy, police academy? Why hasn't this been really um, a point to be brought up and talked about more in depth during the training? That's a question I still continue to ask myself because I never want to think I've come to the final conclusion with some of the findings I have had. I mean, one of the most obvious is we're a very death avoidant society. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it in ourselves, much less deal with it when it happens at work. Um, I think the other part of it is, well, I thought part of it was we just didn't have time to fill I agree to an extent that there is a lot of stuff we have to fill in a 16 week period or 20 week period that we have paramedic students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. However, that wasn't enough of an excuse. And when I spoke to, I spoke to a couple of um, four and six year paramedic programs in the UK and they even don't make time for it. So I realized then, okay, it's not a time factor, mm -hmm. you know, regardless, we can figure out a way to, to fold this in. Um, but I think part of it also is we just always thought it was someone else's job. Yeah. Most people would be surprised to learn that we don't get, as paramedics and EMTs, we don't get any more training than a doctor does in this. And yet this whole time, I thought it was a doctor's job. I thought it was something they were specialized in. And it's so funny because I, I survey a lot of, um, I do this at the beginning of one time I teach the course in person. And I, I added this as kind of a survey question at the beginning of the online course that I finally created. And out of all the paramedics and EMTs that have taken it, most of them think it's the doctor's job. And the two doctors I've had that took the course think it's a nurse's job. So we're just all blindly walking around thinking it's someone else's mm -hmm. role. When in reality, I think I would say chaplains are, are quite easily the most trained and expected to conduct this task, but not every department, not every hospital, not every situation calls for a chaplain. So. That, that's where I think we need to really um, own the fact that this is our role in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and properly train and prepare the first responder for that task. Yeah, I mean, you look at, I mean, look at the situation where you get onto a scene, someone's in cardiac arrest, and you're either uh, rolling up where telephonic CPR is being done by the a member of the family, and now you're taking over CPR if it was witnessed, unwitnessed the time frame in which that, you know, patient is worked up and then in the unfortunate circumstance that it is a pronouncement is pretty fast. I mean, we're talking less than less than an hour. I mean, you know, depending on age, circumstance, uh, underlying conditions, you know, all, all that different kind of stuff wrapped up, especially now. So even more during a global pandemic where, you know, your resources are taxed and, um, you know, patient care is a little bit different because of our safety and safety of everyone else. So to have those uh, professionals that are trained chaplains and whatnot, mental health professionals respond to a scene. I mean, you're talking possibly hours for that to happen when the person has been gone now for quite a while, you know? So it's, it's, you know, it's very important in my eyes as well um, for our first responders, for our frontline workers that are there, um, you know, 
doing these uh, life-saving tactics and, and, and patient care on scene to be trained because it's, it's um, you know, mental health and PTSD and, and these things are all becoming more, uh, I don't want to say prevalent, they've always been around, but it's the awareness is being raised, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more efficiently now. People are really starting to get that. And, um, you know, I think that your, uh, your training, your, um, your course offerings and the educational program that you are um, providing here is, is going to be a wealth of knowledge information. And um, I mean, I personally think that it's something that we should all have to go through and take uh, as we, you know, take on those roles. Like you said, no one knows whose role it is. It, it's, it's, it's our role. I mean, it's something that we're, mm-hmm. we're forced to have to do. So um, the, you know, uh, things that we need to keep in mind, uh, some of the things that you talk about in your course, what are some of the things that we need to do um, on scene and how can we get ourselves in the right mindset? Why are these things that we um, were doing on scene, why are they important to do with the family members as well as uh, you know the, the people surrounding us? Well, um, you know, I'll... <laughs> it's interesting too. And I want to point this part out is that not everybody sucks at this role. Mm -hmm. And I don't want anybody to get the idea that just because we haven't been trained, we are failing to do do this collectively. We aren't prepared to do it period. And Mm -hmm. some of us are better emotionally and just equipped to be there for the family when this occurs. Um, if you were like me, I eventually got good at it, but it was something that I had a lot of trial and error with that I wouldn't have had to have had this existed back then for me. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to kind of make that clear is that yeah. a lot of times I find that people either fall into the group of, I don't know how to do this and I want to avoid it completely, or, oh, that's good to know. I, I was doing that, but someone told me that was wrong. And I thought it wasn't. And then the ones that I've made enough mistakes by this point that I feel good at it, but it could have been more efficient. And um, so a few things that anybody can kind of keep in mind, whether this is a reinforcement of something you already suspected or something that you want a confirmation on, um, but it's important in the very beginning. So when you get on scene of a cardiac arrest, there's usually one person that you can tell calls the shots in the house. And they're the person that either knows the most about the patient or they're the, you know, RP or whatever it might be. And so you want to tie in with them and let them know immediately, you know, do your introductions, find out what their name is, um, introduce yourself and, you know, tell them immediately how long you're going to be on scene. So telling them how, how long you're going to be on scene. Cause you're, every agency is different. Some of them are, you know, scoop and run. Some of them are 45 minutes. All right. Let me ask you a question. Are you like me and need a cup of coffee in the morning to get your day off to a good start? How about an afternoon cup of bean at the station? We all know that shift work is brutal to our sleep cycles and that we could use a cup of joe to give us that push through the shift. That's where our friends from fire department coffee come in. Whether you're a firefighter, an EMT, or dispatcher, do yourself a favor and try them out. We have a special offer for our listeners and supporters. Go to firedepartmentcoffee.com, that's F-I-R-E-D-E-P-T-C-O-F-F-E-E.com, and use promo code FMBA on your next purchase for 15% off. In addition, for every purchase made using promo code FMBA, Fire Department Coffee will donate 15% of the sale to our Mark Virag Memorial Cancer Fund. These guys are great people and are career firefighters themselves, 
just trying to make really good coffee to help us get through our next shift. So go buy some today and don't forget to use promo code FMBA. And so letting them know, hey, we're going to be here doing everything that we can for this amount of time. So that way you're getting ahead of their question when they start wondering why isn't the ambulance moving? It's here. And you get to tell them and remind them. And sometimes even first responders need this reminder is that the paramedics have the ability, the paramedics and EMTs have the ability to do everything that the ER does. Right. And because it's happening right then and there, it's better. Mm-hmm. Not suggesting that they run a you know code way better than the hospital does, but if it happened in the hospital, the hospital is going to be the most appropriate place and they're going to be able to run it better than anybody else. So it's a matter of working where you're at. And so when you remind them that it's really important not to interrupt the treatment and that you have everything that the hospital does and they're a phone call away, it really just reinforces this confidence in the medical treatment that they're able to give right then and there. Um, Another thing is um, you're gonna want to be comfortable with repeating yourself because the family, whoever's there on scene is now being flipped into this acute stress response and they're not going to process things as easily. And as first responders, we have to remember to use very little basic language, small doses of information because it's, it's just how stress works. I mean, as it is, the amount of cortisol being pumped into their body is going to make them forget half of those interactions. So just in the meantime, you know, check in with them and, and repeat yourself to, to recap. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably another one is to be comfortable to be comfortable with saying the words dead and died. Mm-hmm. And that one I get a lot of mixed opinions about. So people either say, you know, I thought that was the way you did it, or they felt very cold and um, not compassionate when they said the words dead and died, but it's so important and it ties back into when the family member is stressed out, they don't understand the shades of gray. So you can't say they passed away. You can't say that they're no longer with us or whatever euphemism you want to come up with. That makes you feel more comfortable. I know I've done it. That makes us feel more comfortable instead of just being straight and honest with them. That all said though, um, while it's important to say dead and died when you're ready to finally pronounce the patient, or let's say they were DOA when you got there and you just need to flat out tell them, yes, they're dead. It looks like it happened a while ago. But anything you want to make sure that they hear, you want to say beforehand. So meaning you get on scene and it's a 20 minute workup and you've got an ability to work them up. You're going to want to um, let them know that their heart's not beating let them know that they're not breathing on their own. Let them know what you're doing to try and reverse this, that if it doesn't work, this is not going to be good. And you want to prep them up. So you don't have to say dead and die in the very beginning, save it for the end. But when you're ready to terminate resuscitation efforts and pronounce, that's when you can use it. Or if you get on scene and they're already DOA, you gotta be really straight with them. And that creates this trust between the two of you because Mm -hmm. when we're very vague or when we make them have to work to figure out what you're trying to say, uh, they get pissed off, quite honestly. And and I've been in that situation before where someone wasn't being straight with me either. And I, I can honestly say that that was part of what would have made things work out better is if someone had just been very clear with me. Yeah. And so, then, um, oh, no, sorry, that's all right. Ahead. No, no, that's fine. Um, you know, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to developing that trust, because a lot of times they may be led on 
you know, to believe that because we're there, everything's going to be okay. That might just be the immediate perception in their mind that as soon as we show up, we're here to save the day, right? Whether, whether you're a first responder, you're an EMT, paramedics show up, depending on, you know, however that response is, you know, you are there and in their mind, everything's going to be okay because we're here to save everything. So, um, you know, I think that that trusting relationship you're developing with a matter of the first moments of meeting that person is, uh, is important to help them understand the severity of the, of the call, the severity of the situation and, um, you know, not lead them on or not assist their own perception of what is, uh, what's going on that, you know, this is probably going to have a negative outcome. I mean, we all know that, you know, even the best CPR is, uh, you know, 40% of what the heart's pumping capacity is, even if you're doing perfect CPR, right? So, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that I think um, even as EMTs and, and medics are working on it, you know, if you have that person you designate as a police officer, if it's the captain of the fire engine, if it's the EMS supervisor, whoever that person is needs to, um, you know, develop that uh, understanding with the, with the uh, patient representative. 100%. So when it, when it comes to, um, you know, using those words and, and, and talking to uh, the patient representative, their reaction to that, right, uh, is going to be a mixed bag of reactions. How do we, how do we go about handling um, what their reaction is, and whether they're going to be, you know, angry, sad, confused, um, what, what's your recommendation on handling their, uh, their reaction? Well, um, scene safety being the exception, meaning at any point their reaction becomes violent, threatening, um, just, you know, you know what that looks like. Let them react. It doesn't matter if they are, some, some people react very, I mean, just to a point where you're like, you know, you're waiting for them to break down. They don't. And it kind of concerns you like, why aren't you upset? But that can be very cultural. Um, not only cultural, but individual as well. So you've had everything from completely silent and stoic and maybe even in a state of shock to screaming and running up and down the street. And you got to just let them go. Like don't go chasing them after them because that's just going to, you know, harm you and them. They'll come back. But, um, the, the in-between is usually that, that crying and the, um, a lot of times they're praying out loud and they're, they're angry. Um, they could be, it, it could be any variety of it. And I remember being asked one time, like, you know, this one guy had told the, the patient's wife that he, he had died and he, she just broke down, understandably so. And he said, how do we, how do we fix, like, what are we supposed to do for that? And I'm like, mm, we're just going to allow it. And I think that can be the most uncomfortable part is that you're not supposed to do that is exactly what they need to be doing. Mm -hmm. You've allowed their grieving process to start and as guilty as that might leave you feeling because you had to be the bearer of bad news. You're not leaving her in a place of bargaining and a place of um, denial and this false hope that them going to the hospital is somehow going to fix them when it, they're ultimately going to get that that bad news um, once they get there. So it's allowing that grieving process to start and it's a, giving them the space to do it and not trying to tell them to calm down or it's okay or be strong for the other kids, you know, just let them do it. 
Yeah, I think I think it's um, there's a certain set of personal expectations on yourself, right? When it comes to, um, you know, the grieving process of that patient and you almost feel responsible or the responsibility of now having to play the role of a psychiatrist or a psychologist in the same breath or same token, you know, and trying to um, provide them with some level of comfort. And, and I agree that, you know, it's really not our place or time to be trying to act in that kind of capacity. What's done is done. What happened has happened. And you just kind of have to let it, let it go, let it be and trying, you know, not trying to um, be the, you know, be the saver because you were unable to save that patient. You know, it's, it's, it's done. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly it. And I think we are so accustomed to, and maybe it's the, the type of personality that's drawn to this trade, but we are so accustomed to, and it's part of the job. Like somebody calls because they have a problem and you fix that problem. You mitigate that problem. You do something. And so to be told to stand back and just feel like you're doing nothing is very unnatural, but you're actually very much doing something. And by being there, by being there to try, by being there not to leave them, you know, to deal with that on their own, even if we do eventually leave, is, a, is a enough. It's more than enough. Yeah. Do you see this becoming part of um, a curriculum? And, and do you see yourself getting involved in the process of developing this into the curriculum, both at the national level, possibly, and, um, you know, in your own local, uh, local area? I'm so glad you asked this question, because I don't think I've said it out loud to enough people. But yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a very stressful part of the job. And that is, I avoided it for a long time. I avoided it until I kept getting put in situations where I wasn't allowed to avoid it. And so that's when I think I got better at it, but you know, still knowing there was something more that needed to be, there was a better way we could do this. I, I couldn't, I still can't believe it hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. Not to this extent, not to the point where people are, are pushing it. And I, I guess to answer again, another part of the question that you had asked earlier was why aren't, what's the reason? And I think part of it is um, when the when our resuscitation fails, it feels like a personal failure and you don't wanna be the one to tell the family because then they might turn around and blame you. Not everybody feels that way. I felt that way sometimes. That was motivation to avoid them enough, but yeah, it does feel like a personal failure. This is something that belongs in national standard curriculum. The fact that we've ignored it this long is almost like, you know, I, I don't want to say it's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing, but it's like the long, we know better now. And the, there has been plenty of published research from all the way back in the eighties that identified that this was a missing component in emergency medical care. So decades later, I think it's time. So I think, yes, um, my goal, actually, I, my first goal is tackling um, the state I live in. So um, Title 22 in California is what regulates our, our curriculum. And so somehow, some way that'll get impacted and then on a national level. But yeah, I, I one way or another, it'll catch their attention. So I, I am already in uh, several paramedic programs as well. So that's another way to kind of infiltrate it, especially when you're treating not treating, teaching, uh, you know, the young and the, the brand new uh, ones coming out there. So that's where we're starting. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, us as a, as a labor organization, you know, representing over 5,000 firefighters, EMTs and dispatchers here in New Jersey, we work uh, very hard uh, at the state level legislatively to get things like this, um, you know, put in place. Uh, we've got several EMS bills here that we're working on to, uh, you know, benefit the safety of our members and, um, and whatnot. So I think if, if you're able to take that approach as well, um, in, in your own home state there, um, you might have some success going that route. Um, let's talk a little bit, let's kind of migrate from the actual, uh, topic for a second. And let's talk a little bit about your, your, educational platform, your company, Emergency Resilience LLC. Tell the listeners a little bit about um, the company, um, what what the platform is about, how it's structured, what kind of, um, you know, course offerings there are, how do they go about signing up for that kind of stuff? Okay, well, um, like I said a little earlier, I, I kind of developed it out of a little bit of frustration because, um, you know, the, the whole time thing. I think that part of that was an excuse and part of it was true. So I wanted to kind of create a place for me to put these topics. And some of the topics that I have taught in person include um, obviously this death communication and, you know, how to notify the family, um, occupational resilience. So basically just how to prepare yourself for the adversities of this job and just learning the resources that are available and the options that are available before you're in a position to need it. I think that that can be a very proactive versus reactive initiative. Um, experiencing grief, grief in the workplace, mental health. I mean, there's there's such a catch-all of all these different things that I think are relative. And where mental health applies to death notification is that, you know, I don't, I didn't lose much sleep over the 94-year-old grandma that lived a good life. But, you know, the three-year-old kid that drowned at his own birthday party definitely does leave a little bit of a scar. So I think it's important to understand where they relate, even though not every patient you pronounce is going to leave that kind of impact. And that's, um, I think, important to make sure to discern. But I, I basically just put this thing out there so that I could um, make it more available beyond my backyard. I mean, these are classes I've taught to my local fire departments and to my paramedic students when I can, and discussions I've had with, with people in my network but I wanted to be able to reach a bigger, bigger wingspan. And I started with this death communication course in an online format. There will be other courses that will come. Uh, but right now this is kind of the, the first one to, mm -hmm. to get out there. And that's going to be available on emergency resilience. It's an online uh, course and people can go on there and kind of go at their own pace. And so far the response has been pretty remarkable. So I'm very excited to see what, what other content um, I can get out there for everybody and see where it goes from there. Yeah. Is it, um, is it, is it like a webinar format? Do you have, uh, like a, is it like a PowerPoint that you do? Is it you, uh, set up in person? Um, and if our departments and, or, uh, even within our organization, if we wanted to, um, reach out to you and see if we can offer this as a training to our members, um, how do they go about, you know, that process? So I've had uh, several agencies do it a few different ways. And so the best part about working with me directly is that we can kind of find a creative way that this you know, fits wherever their um, abilities are. And so I've got one uh, fire department that wants to, basically they just 
the coordinator just gets purchases a code for each person in the department and then they take it on their own pace or whenever they deliver it. Um, I have another one that's adamant about having me in person, which they have the ability now because of where they're at with their COVID vaccines and, and easing up on the travel restrictions in their area. So I was able to accommodate that. Another is just, you know, the individual going on there and basically finding the people who are most interested in it. So it's not kind of a forced forced training because I do know how much I loved online training when I was in the field and it's just not, it doesn't typically um, get a whole lot of interest just based on the platform alone. But I will say, and this comes from everybody else, not just me, that the short modules and they're all video, there's no PowerPoint at all. Um, not to say I would never use it if it's, if it's applicable, but I, I, this is not a death by PowerPoint course. Um, they're very short videos. Um, the longest one is a bonus module, which is 20 minutes, which is a really good conversation with a friend of mine where we talk about PTSD, uh, someone who experienced it on the job um, with an on the job injury. And then the other ones are as short as uh, four and eight minutes long. So it's, it's very quick, um, several, several different, um, there's about seven modules, six or seven modules, and then each one has multiple lessons. And there's reflection questions in there. So it kind of forces you to really be introspective about your own relationship with this topic and, and do so in a little bit more of a private way because you're taking the course on your own and not necessarily in a group with other people. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. If, um, if somebody wanted to sign up for the class, how do they go about doing so? What's the website and how do they go about doing that? They would just go to emergencyresilience.com and scroll down to the courses and it is live now. It just went just launched this online course. I've been working on the online version for about a year. So COVID kind of pushed things back, but the online version is now available as of a couple of weeks ago. So. And if, uh, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, if they had questions, um, questions about the course, questions about your training, um, how could they go about reaching out to you? Do you have an email address you wanted to give out? Did they want to reach out to you on social media? Did there, is there a contact us uh, form on the webpage? What's the best way? There is a contact form on the website, which also has uh, my email attached to it. The best way is probably on social media. I'm, I'm probably the most active on Instagram for, and they can find me on emergency resilience. Uh, Twitter also has um, one, so Emerge Resilience, because uh, it wouldn't fit the whole word emergency. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also on Facebook, but the, probably the least active on there. Gotcha. Um, I really can't uh, thank you enough again for spending the time today to talk about this important topic and uh, for taking the lead and grabbing the bull by the horns and, and coming out with the, um, the educational content that is needed by so many of us um, to tackle this. So we appreciate what you do and, uh, and the hard work and effort you've put into this. And uh, I'm really hopeful that some of our members listening to this can uh, visit your website, sign up for the course, get the training because it's, it's important. Thank you so much. I appreciate you recognizing that and doing, you know, just it, it's a conversation piece is the way I put it. And this course is not just made up of everything that I've learned in my experience and I've learned through my education, but also what I've learned from those I, I teach to. And so this really is accumulation of all those experiences. And I, my hope is that it continues to represent, especially those who are out there doing it and, and those, you know, individuals like yourself. So I appreciate you 
spreading that word and spreading that message and and bringing that conversation to your to your table and seeing where we can take it. Great. Thanks again, Alex. I really appreciate it. And I hope uh, you stay safe out there. Thank you, you too. Hey guys, Bill Brower here with FMBA Nation. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about ServPro of Central Union County in Western Essex County. These guys are a trusted leader in the restoration industry. They provide 24-hour residential commercial services with highly trained restoration technicians. They're a locally owned and operated business, and they're dedicated to being faster to any size disaster with the training, equipment, and expertise to handle your restoration and cleaning needs. Some of the things that they cover are water damage restoration, fire damage restoration, mold remediation, storm damage restoration, cleaning services, and building services, to name a few. These guys understand the stress and worry that comes with a fire or water damage and the disruption it causes to your life and home or business, and their goal is to help minimize the interruption to your life and quickly make it like it never even happened. Our friends over there, Carl Spinner and Bob Morrison, Carl has over 25 years of experience in the industry. Bob Morrison has over 35 years of service industry sales experience. So don't hesitate to give them a call. You can reach them at 908-233-7070. All right, guys, thanks for listening to another great episode of FMBA Nation, and stay tuned for some more great content to come. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also listen on the NJFMBA YouTube channel, as well as Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and the Google Play Store. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the FMBA Nation podcast, please email us at nation at njfmba.org.